Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, Healthcare Sustainability Leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. My guest today is Dr. Adrian Wald, educator focusing on health promotion and more recently on the impacts of climate change on health. She shares her rich experience and encourages nurses to, in her words, quote, get out there and get going and see what we can get done. I'm thrilled today to be able to speak with Adrian Wald, and and I'll just dive in to have Adrian introduce herself and tell us about her background. Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shank. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. I really um, am glad to have this opportunity, so thank you. A uh, little bit about my background. Um, I've been a nurse for 43 years, and uh, I am currently an associate professor of nursing uh, at Mercy College in New York in the School of Natural and Health Sciences. Um, I have a doctorate degree from Teachers College, Columbia University, and an MBA in healthcare administration, healthcare management uh, from Adelphi University. My BSN back in 1977 is from Boston University. And I have certifications as a, a nurse educator, a CNA, and a master certified in health education as a health education specialist. Um, I've My career, has been very diverse and interesting, and certainly not linear in any way, but I've been, had a really interesting career as, as a clinician be, in my early years as an administrator, and now uh, for the last over a decade as an educator, uh, and more recently some expertise in research and really passion for um, examining different questions related to my clinical and um, health care interests. So, you know, my early years, uh, my clinical background is oncology nursing, and there are certain patients, I guess, who just stay with us forever. And I had a, an early patient back in the late 70s at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, a lovely woman with presented with an, a really advanced cancer, fungating, malodorous uh, breast lesion that was painful and embarrassing for her, as well as uh, really a devastating, filled with maggots, and uh, really one of these devastating patients who just stays with you forever. She, her lack of access to healthcare cost her her life. It was a death sentence for her. And uh, it was truly heartbreaking. So I went and I specialized then in oncology um, and I worked at, at Dana-Farber taking care of patients with all types of cancers, uh, many of whom were undergoing really complicated treatments for different types of cancers. Back then, five-year survival rate was really terrific. And uh, many of these cancers were lifestyle related. And that's, I guess, the point where um, watching patients back in those days, we could smoke in the hospitals and smoke through our trach tubes and with the oxygen at the bedside. And um, it really hit me that so much of the suffering that I was seeing and so much of the cost emotionally, financially, uh, to our healthcare system, to our patients, to their families was lifestyle related. 
and you know the the typical NCDs we call them non-communicable diseases, and that really fueled my passion. Along with at the time, um, you know, I've always been an athlete, and I'm a passionate outdoors person. I grew up hiking, skiing. I actually went into nursing because. Um, I was a ski patrol, junior ski patrol, and I had to take first aid. And so I thought, this is great. I'll be a ski bum and, you know, be able to work as a nurse on the side. <laughs> um, that, that didn't work out. But uh, my love and my passion for nature and being an athlete and being really connected to the earth and to my body and to lifestyle um, and seeing patients who didn't need to be suffering really resonated with me at that point. So it really fueled my interest, my current interest from kind of gone full circle in my 45 year career. We're starting out in tertiary care, taking care of really sick patients with devastating cancers to primary prevention and really focusing on uh, lifestyle management and wellness and health prevention. So in between, all of that. When I, I got my MBA, um, I did spend about 20 plus years on the administration side of healthcare. So I actually left nursing uh, for almost 25 years and worked. I was a healthcare systems an, um, and consultant and I worked as, I went back to my nonprofit roots and I was able to uh, serve as the uh, an administrator for health services at the American Red Cross in New York. So I ran their marketing, health services, health education programs, um, all of their CPR, first aid, cholesterol screening back in the, at the time was an important cardiovascular prevention. Um, so focus more on the, on the marketing and the business side. I ran their allograft tissue bank and I managed to staff uh, and was really an administrator role, but always using my clinical expertise. Um, and again, education. It was all health services, but it was health educational programming. So I then segued, um, my son was born at the Red Cross, just almost literally. Um, and so that was about 30 years ago. And at that time I decided to leave, I had a really, it was a high pressure 12 hour kind of days. Uh, managing the unit at the Red Cross. So I, I segued for about six years into health education, um, medical education. And I was, I actually was a content manager in the dot-com era for Doctors Net Access and for some companies uh, working on uh, physician education. And a lot of it was funded by our wonderful pharmaceutical companies. So uh, learned an awful lot about target audiences and uh, medical education and working with thought leaders and putting together programming and conferences and uh, materials to uh, promote the products and services that the pharmaceutical companies were providing, but the science part of it. After being a vice president in a medical education company, uh, I decided that I, would, I really wanted to go back to something more meaningful. And my passion at that point, I'd been a marathon runner for 30 years, uh, really involved in health promotion and lifestyle management, uh, real interest in uh, promoting healthy behaviors. And so I, I started taking some courses at Columbia towards my doctorate and decided if I was going to do it, it was all or nothing. And so I left my position and went back to school, deciding that I really wanted to... I, 
give back. And um, it's hard to, to walk away from, uh, you know, money and, uh, you know, a, a secure position. But I really felt like this is not how I want to be spending my time and my life and my energy. And that I really wanted to do something much more meaningful at that point and to really try to tie in all of my passions. And so I, while I was um, working, my doctorate at Columbia was in uh, health, health behavior, the Department of Health Behavior at Teachers College at Columbia. And I had some wonderful mentors there, one of whom is um, an exercise physiologist who was on my dissertation committee and also a, a, a physician, young guy who was um, a superstar at Mailman's uh, School of Public Health and was able to get some really great mentoring. Also my, my nurse mentor there who was a specialist in, in um, tobacco control, et cetera. And so I, I also was able to work at a small college in New York as the director of wellness education. So, and I taught some courses for the nursing school there as well. So in my role as the director of um, wellness education, I was involved in initiatives like uh, tobacco control, healthy campuses. Uh, we did Meatless Mondays. We, I, I, we developed a wellness coaching program for students to be uh, peer mentors and to be involved in environmental health issues. Tobacco control, tobacco-free campuses was a passion of mine. Uh, and I think the tobacco story is one that really resonates with me as well. It's kind of when I get discouraged and I feel like, you know, there's just too many barriers and challenges to this environmental health and to trying to keep people healthy and get them healthy and keep them out of the hospitals and all of the challenges in public health that we face. Um, I think the tobacco story kind of gives me some hope. And Dr. Koh, who was HHS secretary, he was an oncologist in Boston many years ago. And his story kind of uh, mirrors mine in that when you've seen patients suffering so needlessly with with cancers and and environmental um, you know back then we didn't even realize that a lot of those cancer patients were environmentally uh, related and exposure related and environmental justice issues um, we just thought you know some people got cancer uh, so now knowing more and being able to study uh, health promoting behaviors um, and look at the intersection of physical activity, diet, environmental exposures, and how addressing those challenges really have a, a profound impact. On Facebook this morning, I was tagged in by a student who is an emergency room, uh, Bronx, Lebanon emergency room, nurse now and he was a student of mine and we we started a narcan training program for the students there was the opioid epidemic all of you know as a wellness director i was able to i brought the the narcan training by partnering with the department of health they worked with our students and we trained them in opioid um, prevention and uh narcan administration to prevent overdose deaths we we you know, the, the work that I do with the students is so energizing and seeing them then going out, you know, to get, an, uh, get tagged in a Facebook um, message today where they, he said four years later, after taking the Narcan training, he's now, you know, saving lives in the ER who, uh, who are overdosing. Uh, so it's kind of gratifying and it makes me feel like, okay, there is some meaning here because uh, it gets discouraging. You know, after all of these years, um, 
working to make a difference and to see change and then to have the last four years of, of um, the rollbacks of the EPA and all of the, the challenges and the barriers that we face. You know, we wonder, are we making any progress and how do we really, you know, I, I've always been fueled by trying to make a difference and to teach my students that they can make a difference, that, you know, try to fuel their passions to be able to go out and, and make a difference. I feel like if I, I come from a place of great privilege and um, I've, I am Jewish by upbringing and kind of follows the the teachings of, you know, what's kind of been my shining light has always been to whom much is given, much is expected. And I've kind of lived, tried to live my life to give back and to feel like I have had so many opportunities and um, teaching and being in, um, in healthcare is really, the, to me, the best opportunity to be able to make a difference and to use my, my privilege. Um, so anyway, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I had really activist parents who, um, you know, we marched, they took me to Washington in the 60s when I was, a, you know, not even a teenager to, uh, you know, anti-war activities. And so I've been a, a long time peace um, activist and politically active in the causes that, that I, I feel passionate about. And, you know, it, it's nice. It, it's, it all comes together. And, and my work over the last few years in environmental health is really just, you know, a natural progression of all of these, these passions. Well, this is really interesting, Adrian, and thank you for explaining um, your background. It's really wonderful to talk with experienced nurses such as yourself who have seen changes over the decades and have seen your role change. And I, I give you credit for responding to your deep values of, I mean, two things you said, one just, just now about needing to give back, you know, absolutely. And the other about wanting more meaning in the work that you were doing. And so then you, you retooled, you redirected. This is an important uh, lesson, I think, for younger nurses or for, for nurses in the, their mid-career who may be frustrated or may be burned out or may be, you know, wa wanting to address these things. I mean, it really resonates with me about, I too started as an oncology nurse, and it resonates with wow. me about how we were not getting upstream. We weren't really using that term then, but mm -hmm. it was just like patient after patient after patient, and we were not helping the root causes. And so I've always been oriented toward, even though I've been spent all of my years in acute care, I've been oriented towards public health thinking mm -hmm. along these ways, and of course, specifically about environment. So I want to I go down that road a little bit, since this is an environmental health nursing podcast. Um, tell me more, help me connect the dots more between your rich background and your more recent interest, or, or maybe maybe it's not more recent, but your interest right now in environmental health. I heard you talk about tobacco, which is a great um, example, not only of an environmental toxicant, but also the pressure from industry and education. But tell, tell me more about your work. I, your work on climate, I know you're active, your work with environment and cancer and your interest. How'd you get involved with Annie, for instance? Let's Let's start there. Okay. Um, I got involved with Annie just um, by seeing something online about a writing group taking place on Martha's Vineyard in the summer, and I had been wanting to get motivated to do some writing, and my environmental work has really just grown out of my passion for health-promoting behaviors and working with um, wellness coaching and uh, 
health, uh, public health prevention. Um, my, I, the organizations I'm involved with besides oncology nursing from way back, um, you know, I really haven't been clinically focused in a long time, but my teaching is, is in um, health policy and research and um, leadership. Uh, so the opportunity to, to meet a group of um, nurse leaders who are on Martha's Vineyard for, with Anne, who are all doing really interesting work in terms of in, environmental work. Um, my, I, I was, I never really considered myself at the time as really being environmentally focused. I considered it more um, that I'm a, in public health and in um, lifestyle, uh, health education, health promotion, and. That is because my background in marketing and in um, health education is was more focused on um, prevention in the sense of preventing chronic illnesses. So the, my, my interest in environmental work just kind of grew out of that. Um, of course, how can you have health promotion and healthy lifestyles on an unhealthy planet and an unhealthy environment? So, I kept just running into environmental health issues, whether it was tobacco control, which at the time was a health issue, uh, not an environmental issue. It was a, uh, you know, we shut down the tobacco industry uh, because it was a health issue, not because, and, and actually it was a combination of strategies and it was brilliant because it was really a public health strategy saying that um, secondhand smoke is dangerous. So it became not a, an issue of personal freedom, but of having an impact on other people. And that's really how most of the regulations for tobacco control originally um, evolved. Uh, and of course, undercover, you know, uh, working to expose the tobacco industry and the lies and deceitful behaviors that um, you know, cost so many lives and so much suffering, et cetera. Um, and we, we face this all the time. I mean, this is a tension that, you know, I faced all the time working as a, a, a vice president in a medical education company, promoting, working with physicians and thought leaders to promote medications and pharmaceutical approaches that it's the same thing. Big pharma is big pharma. Big tobacco is big tobacco. You know, fossil fuel, big, you know, oil is big oil. And these are terribly complex issues and fights. And there's so many um, players and so much, so many um, competing interests and so many, um, you know, it's, it's complicated and it's complex. And yet for me, at the end of the day, it's always about health. <laughs> And with tobacco, um, I think it's such a, 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 a positive story and it gives, it fuels my hope in that um, we, we reduced tobacco smoking in this country in an, a really uh, tremendous way by telling people the truth, by spending, you know, I always said, if I had the budgets that I had to promote physical activity behavior and healthy lifestyles that Madison Avenue has to promote pharmaceutical companies and agents, you know, I could do an amazing marketing pr uh, campaign. And, you know, if, if we could 
promote vaccines for COVID now. We had those kind of marketing dollars and brains and talent behind getting the, doing the good work as we do promoting Coca-Cola and, you know, you know, uh, soda and soft drinks that are, they just, you know, there's no redeeming value for tobacco. There's no redeeming value for, you know, some of these products. You walk around a grocery store and you know, skip the whole 20 aisles in the middle. Just they're, they're garbage and they're toxic. So, you know, we, we know these things, but so what do we do about it? And the tobacco story is one where we did something about it. And we've used policy and regulations appropriately, strategically to make changes to say, you know, um, yeah, you know, would, would it, my, my wish, could we shut it down? I mean, there's still other countries all over, we're global world, you know, society. It's not just what we're doing here. There's still billions of Chinese and other, you know, um, countries where tobacco is killing people in hordes. Uh, I don't have the, the data, but we know that, that, you know, we may have made a difference here, but you know, guess what? The air in China is having an impact on us. And um, the water, you know, I'm, I think my biggest concern right now is water. And I am kind of, you know, the more I've studied, you know, my, my research interests now are extreme heat. And I've really focused on, and it, it, it's funny how my, all of these things come together. My interest in physical activity behavior, I, I've been involved in the American College of Sports Medicine because I've, um, as a marathon runner, you know, I ran Boston six times and I've done marathons all over the country um, and competed for, for 30 years um, in running. And I coached the cross country, the women's cross country team at, at the college. Uh, and one of the things that I got involved with, with the American College of Sports Medicine, I became an evidence analyst to start to try to learn. Um, you know, my, my research is, is on physical activity, epidemiology kinds of things. So how do we promote physical activity behaviors? And they go together. If you get better physical activity, you're, you have better sleep and better diet. And, you know, it's the whole health promoting package. Um, but I, so I was an evidence analyst and I, I um, have worked as doing medical care marathons and the medical tents, so there, which is really interesting because uh, I was in the medical tent with hypothermia one year after Boston and realized, wow, this is like a major medical operation they're running here. So I started um, learning more about some of the, uh, and I published some articles about medical care marathons and some of the key illnesses, um, the, the conditions that were associated with. And of course, extreme heat and exercise associated collapse and um, hyperthermia are, are big threats as well as hypothermia. And when I worked with the American College of Sports Medicine recently on uh, exertional heat stroke and reviewing all of the data on uh, heat stroke and heat related illnesses got me really interested in the environmental, not sports related, but the environmental aspects of extreme heat. Because and of climate change specifically? Because of climate change. Well, yeah. because it's really, it's the silent killer. And everyone is all over floods and hurricanes and the, the mm -hmm. you know, the wildfires and all of this. Extreme heat kills more than, than any of those put mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And as a, um, as a, an environmental issue, it just fascinated me at, 
to see the so so the work that I just um, recently published in uh, the Journal of Nursing Economics was my uh, an integrative review that I did looking at extreme heat events or heat waves and there's no standard definition of these so the terminology gets complicated mm -hmm. but extreme heat has been so kind of underappreciated as a health um, disaster really mm -hmm. and the the integrated review I did just looked at all I was interested in was extreme heat you know three days or more of these 90 degree days where uh, what happens to emergency room visit volume and that's what I was focused on and I also you know my MBA and my, my interest I, I always I feel like the economic um, it, uh, impact is just as important in a lot of ways for communicating with the public um, as the health impact and if you can tie those together I think it's really powerful and you know yeah it's costing all of these all this increased visit volume to the emergency rooms and all of the stress on the healthcare system and usually at a time when the healthcare system is already overstressed so this is additional volume in uh, for heat related emergencies on top of cardiac emergencies and everything else that takes place with heat waves so i was only looking at heat related injuries mm -hmm. and there is tremendous um, new data now um, showing that and most of it is from I only looked at the United States most of the information that we have on these events is from Australia and all of the you know the other um, parts of the world where extreme heat is much more of a, a problem but we're getting there and we're getting there so quickly the number the you know the incidence and the severity um, and the duration of all of these extreme heat events is just um, exploding and you know the, the, all the projections are there so we can we, we know what's going to happen we know that in the southeast and in you know I have friends who live in Arizona who have to get up at four in the morning to go for their run because if they wait any longer it's too hot and uh, you know you the 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 implications are there we know what's going to happen we have to plan for these things so i'm really interested in disaster planning and in you know again um, primary prevention and looking at what do we need to do we know that um, environmental health issues we know that the water uh, we've got a covid emergency right now we can't even get, you know, play, there are places where we still can't get water moratoriums enacted to be able to protect people so they can have safe, clean water. I was contacted in New York, I was working with the Clean Water Group in New York um, when COVID first hit saying, we've got to, you know, write letters and, and try to get policies, emergency policies in place to protect water so that people don't get their water turned off in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it seems so basic, but these are not things that people are thinking about and our health systems are not thinking about so you know i spent so, so let's talk a little bit more about your, your you said that your biggest concern is water and is it for infrastructure is it for protection of natural sources is it access is it uh to keep it public what tell me more about that okay well you know and i'm not an expert in it but one of the things 
and I guess that's why I get very somewhat insecure about some of this. I've learned though that you don't have to be an expert in everything. And yeah. I, this is what I tell my students also. You don't have to be an expert, but you have to know what you don't know and you have to know where to get the information. Yeah. And you need to, um, to know enough to get involved. Uh, so I don't know everything. I'm not an expert in water management and infrastructure and all of this, but what I do know is that, um, and, and I guess what my concerns are, I just wrote a chapter for Annie. And so my work with Annie is really around climate change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of environmental health issues and, and I love the way Annie is structured to have education and the different work groups. And I really have focused in on the, um, the work that Annie's doing around climate change because I feel like that's where most of my, my passion lies. I also did a webinar for Annie on my, the research that I, for their research group on my heat, um, uh, research. And that was really fun. And I love connecting with the researchers and learning what the other projects that are working on and um, uh, that Annie's doing and, and all the, the great work that's taking place there, as well as the education group. So I did just finish a chapter, it's taken almost a year. I don't know how I thought it would be, you know, Ruth McDermott said, oh, well, we've read a chapter. And um, I said, okay, I could do that. It's just a chapter. You know, I've written a chapter before. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, the chapters should be, be online soon, I hope. And I, I, it was on climate change and mental health. And so learning, you know, reviewing all of the literature on the mental health impacts and specifically climate migration and how drought is driving so much of this climate migration mm -hmm. and disrupting uh, communities. And it all, so much of it is related to water access. Mm -hmm. uh, and, we're the the realities of the limits of our supply and the the tremendous exponential impact of climate change um, on things like water supply uh, and the global impact in terms of war and conflict are truly terrifying mm -hmm. truly terrifying i mean um, you know you can I'm an athlete. I know the one thing that I need, I don't need to eat before a marathon and all this other goo and what, I have to have water. <laughs> and you can only go so long without water. And, um, you know, the, you've seen runners collapse, you see all these things, dehydration. It's truly a medical emergency. And this is something that um, we, I don't, you know, infrastructure, water moratoriums, cost of water, all of these things are things that um, we really need the public health infrastructure. Oh, bless you. It's really the, the public health infrastructure that I'm most worried about in terms of water. Like, do we really have um, enough planning in place to be able to divert resources appropriately? Uh, you know, these these are really uh, big issues and and big concerns that I think just sort of get pushed aside or somebody everybody thinks somebody else is working on it or there's some master plan somewhere but I think that there's a level of urgency here that is um, really important so I think it, we need to look at the policies and the um, the the approaches from so many different um, aspects 
this is really so interesting to hear about your perspective and your evolution. And I wonder how, because you're an educator, you have brought some of these concepts, particularly of environmental health, into your education at the university and also into the Annie Fellowship. Tell us about that. It was really honored to be able to serve as a mentor for the, the inaugural Annie Fellowship program. Uh, in EPA Region 2, I had three fellows who had a variety of different backgrounds and interests in terms of environmental health. I was able to work with uh, one of the fellows in Puerto Rico, who's just doing phenomenal work with school-age children, looking at air quality and teaching. Um, he was in a university in Puerto Rico and is really front and center of environmental health impacts in terms of, you know, can, can they catch a break in Puerto Rico? Hurricane after hurricane, environmental um, challenges galore. And then on top of, you know, in between hurricanes and, and, and an earthquake thrown in during the mentorship, um, you know, dealing with a, a trying to implement a program in, in school-aged children who are still reeling from being displaced from the hurricane and infrastructure, schools with mold and, you know, in a floodplain to begin with, and then trying to implement a program to monitor air quality for mold. And they, you know, they, they tested the school for mold and, and different air quality um, using the red flag, the EPA red flag system for schools. Uh, so, you know, what a pleasure to, to be able to help um, a kind of a new, uh, he's, he's working on his doctorate in nursing and involved in the, this community program, educational program with, with focusing on, on elementary school age children to help him, mentor him. I was able to help him write an abstract that was accepted for the American Public Health Association and um, Public Health Nursing section that he presented a, a poster at describing his work. And, you know, so uh, again, you know, I have such a, a long background in education and, and in, in writing um, medical education material. So I was able to help him conceptualize his project in a different way and see how he could communicate the results of his project to a wider audience. So I think that was exciting for him. Um, but the work that he was doing on the ground there is just you know, so important to build those relationships between the university where he was and, and he had a BSN student working with him to help deliver some of the, um, not only did they do air quality training with the students, they also taught students who are high risk um, uh, how to manage their asthma. And you know, so it was really one of those wonderful programs uh, that, that he was able to implement. And again, with the support of Annie and being able to have the webinars and all of the additional supports of networking with uh, colleagues doing other work. So you know, being able to brainstorm and those kinds of things. And then I had a, a, um, a new, new nurse to me, <laughs> she's out a few years, um, working in, in um, one of the hospitals in New York, who was really passionate about composting and working in the Queens community to bring, to identify, she spent a lot of time identifying the needs of her community and what some of the priorities were around gun violence, which is another thing that I'm really passionate about. Um, again, these are all public health issues. These are all primary prevention. Why do we have to, I, I implemented a program at my university, uh, my college, uh, Stop the Bleed. I was at the Boston Marathon with 30 nursing students. We were volunteers on the medical team and the bombs went off in 2013. My students were carrying people on fire with no legs at that. Mm. 
it was devastating. And so I got involved with the Stop the Bleed program, which unfortunately, here we are, this is healthcare. What do we do? Instead of gun control and public health, we have Stop the Bleed programs to teach people on the street how to stop people who are shot and stop the bleeding. You know, I don't want, I don't, I want to put those people out of business. I don't want to do Narcan training. I don't want to do, you know, stop the bleed training. Let's stop the guns. Let's stop the, you know, the opioid epidemic. Let's really have a robust funded public health infrastructure. And I'm so encouraged now, but with the Biden administration, I know I'm kind of all over, but to see a new administration and to see people like Dr. Murphy, who was APHA, Surgeon General, fabulous um, public health leader back at the helm to have science back in politics now. It's really encouraging me at this stage in my career when I'm kind of thinking, should I bail now (laughs) and enjoy life a little bit? Or, you know, now I'm kind of fired up again and my students keep me passionate and fired up to just keep going and to try to really make these changes now. Maybe we can really do this and maybe we can really, you know, we did it with tobacco. We've had successes in public health. Smallpox doesn't, you know, I remember the smallpox vaccine. Yeah, I remember polio. I have friends who had, you know, crutches and we could do this for COVID too, but we've got to put the resources. And I guess, I guess frustrated because, you know, here I am, I'd love to be doing more research. I'd love to be working with students and all of these things, but the money isn't there. You know, I left a lucrative career. to go back into, into academia. And I can't even get money to do projects, to do things with students, all of these things. So those are some of the challenges and the frustrations, but you know, the, the, the ability to impact these things keeps me going. And when I see my students going um, and doing great things, and they have such amazing ideas, and working with the Annie Fellows and seeing um, that, you know what? I don't have to solve all the problems, I just have to, inspire and um, motivate other these students who have all these great innovative ideas to go ahead and do it and to to encourage them to to keep going and to focus on a field where they feel like um, they have their passion and their interests. Yeah, well, if I can keep doing that for a while longer, I will. You bet. Well, I can tell that you're an inspiring um, leader and educator and mentor. And I'm sure that many, many students over the years, um, like like the one who tagged you in Facebook, probably are remembering, oh, I remember what Dr. Wald said. Yeah, I, I, that, that makes more sense now. Um, yeah, so that's fabulous. It, it's a wonderful legacy. So just to wrap up, because I've taken enough of your time, um, is there anything that you would like to say to people who might be listening, students, other faculty, other nurses, about, you know, what I'm impressed with, with what you've said today is you're being, that you're really being true to your own values and you're very effective. Partly what I'm hearing is because you use evidence well, you think through, you know, the logical uh, circumstances, but it's also built on your passion. So what would you like to say to people to um, help them? find a similar path, perhaps. Well, thank you so much, Beth. Um, I, I really I appreciate um, that, that um, feedback, those remarks. Um, I think that what I would like to say 
know, I like that you say that I, I feel passion and, and get things done. I, I guess uh, I'm extremely data driven. I think my MBA, my first job out of my MBA was in a small company and the president of the company used to pound the table and say, show me the data. And so I am extremely, I hold my students to high standards. I hold myself to high standards of knowing what you're talking about. And if you don't know, say so. Say, and I'll get back to you with the information, but be data driven, be focused, have a purpose and have that fueled by a passion. And I guess, you know, I've always been really inspired. Um, some people call me a squeaky wheel and, you know, someone I'm always kind of pushing the system and I, I can be a little bit, you know, difficult because um, I do challenge things. But I like to think of it as, you know, my, some of my, my uh, heroes like John Lewis uh, making good trouble and I will keep making good trouble and I hope that um, you know we all have to stand up and, and make you know you can't fight every fight but make the good trouble that you can make and um, fight for your your those deeply held convictions I mean the the courage of a you know an Ellie Wiesel and a John Lewis and you know a Jane Fonda now you know I would I did go to fire drill Fridays and and get inspired down there and you know keep we have to keep marching we have to keep fighting we have to fight for vulnerable communities that, that don't have a voice and we have to um, you know try to be change agents and to propel um, the, the, the things that we believe in. And so, you know, if we can keep doing that and if we can, you know, there's so much talent and so we can solve these problems. We have, we're such a rich country. We have so much. Let's use it well. <laughs> so let's just, you know, get out there and keep going and, and seeing what we can get done. Here, here. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for your work in the world, for your work in nursing, and for spending this time with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for, for the invitation and for spending the time with me, Beth. I really appreciate it. You thank you, Dr. Chen. It was a pleasure to speak with Dr. Adrienne Wald and learn more about her path in nursing. I was struck by a few things she said, that those who have been given much need to return much, and that navigating one's career towards what is fascinating provides continual renewal. Thank you again to Adrienne, and thank you all for listening. As a reminder, please share the podcast with others, rate us on iTunes, or make a comment. These all help the podcast be more visible. Take care all and talk to you next time.